Welcome to the 43rd Womanthology Podcast. My name is Fiona Tatton and I'll be your host. Womanthology is a digital magazine and professional community powered by female energy and ingenuity. We champion equal recognition and reward for everyone, sharing opportunities, ideas and a deep pool of collective wisdom. Supporting each other to be unstoppable. In this episode, we will be exploring robotics and artificial intelligence, and we will be hearing from our great friend, Professor Carlotta Berry, who talks us through her path into engineering and robotics and the transition that she made from working in the automotive sector to working in academia. She also shares her thoughts about allyship and about co-founding Black in Engineering and also co-founding Black in Robotics. As ever, Inesh Santos will be sharing the details of the news stories in the written issue. A quick reminder that you sign up for the Womanthology newsletter by filling in your details on the front page of our website. That's womanthology.co.uk. You can also join our LinkedIn community by visiting linkedin.com forward slash company forward slash womanthology and find us on Twitter, Instagram and Facebook. Welcome to the Womanthology podcast. We have got Professor Carlotta Berry, who is a Professor of Electrical and Computer Engineering at the Rose Hallman Institute of Technology in Terre Haute, Indiana. So welcome, Carlotta. How are you doing? I am doing wonderful. How are you? Well, I'm doing great. It's one of my favorite issues, so I'm super excited to be speaking with you today. Thank you for having me. I love talking about robotics. Well, we're going to have a good conversation today. So we've spoken with you before for the written magazine, so we'll link to that in the show notes as well. But for the people who missed that, could you give us a quick recap of your educational background, career to date, who is Professor Carlotta Berry? So I have an undergraduate degree in math and in electrical engineering, and I was bitten late in life with a robotics bug, and it actually happened when I was in undergraduate school. And I took a robotics course and it was so cool and so exciting, but I was so disappointed when I discovered that only the graduate students got to touch the robot because they were so expensive and the professors wanted to make sure that we didn't break them. We could write the code for them. We could watch them run, but we couldn't touch it. And at the time I was like, this is no fun. I'm going to become a professor one day and I'm going to design robotics classes where everybody gets to touch the robot. Boo on that. So I graduated from undergraduate at Georgia Institute of Technology in Atlanta, Georgia. And I went to work as a controls and robotics engineer for Ford Motor Company, a windshield plant. And then I went to work for Detroit Edison, which was a coal power plant. And then I got my master's in controls from Wayne State University, which is in Detroit, Michigan. And then I went on to get my PhD in robotics. The great thing about math controls and robotics and engineering is that they're all very closely related. So I went to Vanderbilt University in Nashville, Tennessee and got my PhD in human robot interaction. So that basically looks at how do you design robotic systems so that people can use them in a way that's intuitive, that is logical and it makes sense to them. So I have my PhD topic was on human robot interfaces or designing something that people could use to remotely control the robots if they were not located in the same place. So it's like remote controlling a robot or giving a robot a task or a mission where you're looking at the computer screen and you're trying to figure out what's the robot doing out there? Is it stuck? Is it making good progress? Does it need help? Do I need to go get it? That kind of thing. And that actually grew out of me working as a controls and industrial engineer 
which means I worked in a plant where they made pick and place robots. So I would program and troubleshoot the robots that picked up the windshields and stacked them on cards or put them on a conveyor belt and did that sort of thing. But that's where my love for robotics came. It came from being a student and not being able to touch the robot. Well, I want to participate in one of your classes. I bet they're really fun. They are. We'll try and arrange at some point. Now travel's open again. I'll try and nip over and come and see Please you. Please do. I have lots of online content. So one of my business is Nowhere Steminist. And my motto is my STEM is for the streets. So something I started during the pandemic is putting lots of robotics and electronics content online just because I wanted people to be able to learn no matter where you are, right there in your living room. So there's videos, there's interactive quizzes, there's lots of activities you can try. So if you don't ever make it to my classroom, you could be in my virtual classroom. I am there. We'll put some links to those so people can find them really easily. Absolutely. Super helpful. And since we last spoke about a year ago, what have you been up to since then? What's new with you? Oh, there's so many exciting things. One of them I just mentioned was my business took off. It was launched in July of 2021, Nowhere is And it's an educational consulting business where I do workshops on robotics. I do talks on robotics and AI, on bias and AI. And in two weeks, July of 2022, I will be releasing my first Black STEM romance novel. It's a new genre where we have Black women in STEM who are basically just living their everyday lives. And it's a meet cute about them falling in love. Because I think one thing we needed to do is normalize seeing Black and brown people doing STEM-tastic stuff while also finding love and lost and just living their best lives. Because I always say that engineering has a marketing problem because engineers look like everybody because we design the solutions for the world we live in. So not all engineers are old white guys with tape on their glasses. So I am writing these fictional books about all these steamtastic women. And the first one's coming out in two weeks. I can't wait. It's called Elevated Inferno. It's about a young lady who's getting her master's degree in computer science in robotics and she meets a fireman on a stuck elevator it's cute oh i've got to read one of these right please do oh amazing so they're not out yet but when they are we'll add the links in for those as well i think we have to hit from all angles right if we really want to change the way stem is represented in the world we got to show people you don't have to be a super nerd you don't have to be super smart you just have to be engaged and interested and dedicated and disciplined so I have to come in from all these angles. This is why STEAM is such a big thing right now. Science, technology, engineering, art, and math. So some of the other things I've been doing is robot slam poetry, right? Tell us about that. So robot slam poetry was just me being silly one day where I took one of my robots and I wrote a poem about it. And then I said, you know what? This is a great way to teach people some simple stuff about robots over a beat. So I got dressed up, I put on a little bit of a makeup and I just, I made a rap over a, a, a beat of me talking about my robot sonar and talking about my robot's gripper and my infrared sensors and my photo. You have to be able to inject your love and your passion into this thing, right? There was a young lady I talked to who said, no, I'm really into fabric. I'm into sewing. Well, guess what? Wearable electronics is now a thing. I told her, you can sew little buttons that light up on your shirts. You can put LED strips on the back of your jacket. There's nothing that says you can't still be artistic and do artsy things with, with STEM as well, right? Figure out what your love is and how to marry that with that. 
There was somebody who really liked makeup and then she engineered nails so you could get through yeah. on the, the underground. You could just waft your nails past. Love that. Being creative. That's what it's all about. Innovation and creativity. And there's no one way to do it. Sometimes when you're selling engineering, I meet people are like, oh yeah, I hated calculus. I changed majors. Calculus and, and physics and chemistry, all those things are important and a great foundation, but that's not all we do. And if we're running people away after the first chemistry class or the first calculus class or physics class, we're doing something wrong because they need to see the coolness first, right? I have a math degree. I would never bash math. But if the math experience is running away somebody who would have made a great creative engineer, then we're marketing it wrong. We're selling this discipline wrong. Right. I think with, with math, when you started out doing math, they do things like symmetry and I loved things like that. But then gradually over time, you've got to do less and less of that. And it became more about. And you don't algebra. know why. I don't know why. Like I have videos on my YouTube channel where I show kids how you use this stuff. They learn circumference. Okay. A circle. What I do is I say, I have a robot and I want my robot to drive forward. How far did it go if the wheel rotated once? That's just circumference. But now they're seeing a robot do it, right? So that's something real to them. It's not just the math. It's not just IR. It's not just pi D. I got a wheel. My robot's moving. How did I get my robot there? And sometimes just relating it to something they understand happens. Oh, I absolutely love that because it's giving it context. And if you're thinking, hey, what's the robot doing? I'm going online. I'm checking out your classes. Human-robot interaction, social robotics, that's a never-ending topic. Human-robot interfaces is never going to go away, right? Because as robots become ubiquitous in society, we've got vacuum cleaning robots, we've got lawn mowing robots, we have robots that can now clean your pool. Well, no matter what, if robots are not going to be part of our society, human-robot interaction has to be a part of that because you got to make sure that the robots are able to be used, but also that they're being designed by people who are thinking about the ethics and the bias of them. When AI and technology become ubiquitous and part of our society, we have to also make sure, are there diverse people in the room making sure that these things are being used appropriately? For example, you think about AI and facial recognition is a thing right now where robots could have a camera on them. And if you're using any kind of facial recognition software that is not dependable and reliable at recognizing black and brown faces, that's a problem. So the human has to always be part of the loop when you're designing technology that's going to be used by society so that's never going to go away i use a lot of transcription software and i find that can vary depending on the voice accent accent female versus male voices absolutely same thing right so anytime technology is part of the process you're going to always need that human machine interaction or human computer interaction or human robot interaction as a way of considering how these things are being used and if they're being used equitably. I've got a robot vacuum cleaner, which I love. I normally put my feet up, have a coffee in my hand. And really the interaction comes in, how intuitive is it? How easy was it for you to take that robot out the box and use it? Was it easy for you to figure out how to use, right? Like my mom's in her 80s, so she wasn't born in the computer generation. So I can't give her this highly complicated robot mating, say, here, go figure out how to use that. You got to figure out how to make these things easy. So it's easy as turning a button on, just pushing a button and ah, I can do that. I didn't need to read a 20 page manual to know how to make my robot vacuum cleaner work, right? I think around accessibility as well. So for example, mm-hmm. voice operated stuff, that's incredibly useful. So I love the way technology can 
make things more accessible. If it's designed with that in mind, it can make such a difference. Manipulatives as well, like you said about pressing buttons. My brother has MS, so he can't push small buttons and type on a keyboard and things like that. So having things that can be verbally spoken to and making sure that they're safe, their security is setting so that they can't be hacked into as well. I know you hear about some of these at-home voiceover systems now where people are hacking into them and finding your shopping list and, and things like that. So these are other things you have to also consider. How safe are these things? Or when they don't pick up your voice and you have to shout, that's really bad. And you get into this ridiculous exchange. <laughs> right. You go, no, nothing, no. And then it's that's saying, not what think, I want, right? Do you think this? Is this what you're, no. And at that point, it's kind of like when you call into a company and they tell you to make all these choices before you can speak to an operator. Oh. And no matter what you say, I don't understand. I don't understand. Let oh. me speak to someone, but you have to pick. It's like, oh my God, I just want a human being. <laughs> oh yeah, that just, oh, it's the worst. Technology gone wrong. <laughs> it's the worst. Yeah. So we're working right. around that, which is really good. So right. y- you've spoken before about engineering's pathway problem. Yeah. We've touched on that a little bit, but do you think there's more to say? Absolutely. So I like to say it's not a pipeline because people used to always call it a leaky pipeline and Mm -hmm. calling it a leaky pipeline means there's only one way in and one way out. And unfortunately, it puts the onus on the people in the pipeline that they somehow leaked out. Whereas I like to look at it from the perspective of it's not a pipeline, but it's an obstacle course. And there's all these obstacles along the way. And what ends up happening is some people just go, I'm leaving. I don't want to deal with it anymore as opposed to a leaky pipeline. And because of that, we're losing some people that should have made it to the finish line. So I like to say there's not one way in and one way out. There's many tributaries that will get you there. You may come in from art, you may come in from math, you may come in from chemistry, physics, whatever. But also I think it's about making people aware of the resources and the tools to be successful along this obstacle course while also working on the other end of trying to remove some of these obstacles that we know everyone doesn't face, right? So I feel a big part of my responsibility is to help get you across that finish line by making you aware of the obstacles, helping you navigate them, but then also trying to just take those away. So it's just as easy for me to get across that line as it is for a white male. I like to say, I grew up with a mom who taught kindergarten for 30 years, and I had some classmates whose mom Dad, uncles, and aunts were engineers. They grew up working on cars. I grew up playing with Barbie dolls. So because of that, even in engineering school, they already had a leg up on me because they already knew what electronics were. They already knew what a circuit was. They knew how to wire things and how to solder and all of that. But just because I started from a different point does not mean I cannot make it to the same finish line. Yes. So part of what I'm doing is helping those people get there. Yes, that aspirations. My dad was a civil engineer, so I got a sense relatively early on of what engineering yeah. was. But if you've not got that in your life, or well, people talk about social capital as well, where if you've got access to these role models, people in these areas, then if you don't know about something, you can't get into it. So now the roles are evolving so quickly that young people might go into roles that haven't even been invented yet because technology is moving so fast. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So I'm going to talk to you as well about your support for the Black in X movement. I will. Yeah, absolutely. I can talk to you about that. So in May of 2020, right when the pandemic started, the Black in X movement was born. So even before that, back in 2014, Black in STEM on Twitter and on social media had always been a thing. And 
Vanguard STEM, and there were several other social media movements that supported Black people in STEM. But right around May, after George Floyd got killed, there was the racial profiling of Christian Cooper. He was the Black bird watcher in New York, and Amy Cooper had called the police on him after she asked him to, after he asked her to leash her dog because he was bird watching and his, her dog was scaring off the birds. She called the police because she was offended because he asked her to do something. He videotaped, it went viral and that was the birth of Black Birders Week. And we call that the beginning of the Black and X movement because after that people started finding allyship and companionship and commonality of Black people in STEM along all these different tributaries. And, out of that was born Black and Neuro, Black and Astro. And so Black and Engineering was co-founded by myself and Dr. Monica Cox and Dr. Tahira Reed-Smith, who are professors in engineering at Purdue and at Ohio State. And then in September, I was asked to help found Black in Robotics as well with Dr. Ayana Howard and Dr. Monroe Kennedy. And there's Black in Psychology and Black in Genetics and Black in Chem, and it's never ending now. And we now have this presence on social media where each organization has a week. We came together and the Black and X movement had a homecoming conference June of last year at the one year anniversary of the birth of all these movements. And we now like to say that people can no longer say, I can't find a person of color who does X. We all have websites. We're all over social media, Twitter, Instagram, TikTok. So there's no more of this I couldn't find a black engineer or my company does not have any diversity because we just can't find anyone because you don't have that excuse anymore because it's now literally at your fingertips. And a lot of our organizations are not just about finding support for each other, but educating the community at large about things that are important to us. Dr. Kiznikia Corbett was our speaker last year at the conference because we want to be able to speak to things that are key and important to the black and brown community, right? So speaking about us being vaccinated against the pandemic or speaking about things that seem to impact us more than other people of color, such as maybe sickle cell disease or black women and fibroids or the high mortality rate for among pregnant black women. So things like that, I think it's really important and it's just an enriching experience. And it's just kind of like when I'm sitting at work and I know I'm the only black woman professor on campus, it's like, God, there's something I really want to talk to someone about that I don't think anyone on this campus will understand. I now have a community I can go to and go, has this ever happened to you before? What did you do? How did you feel? And just having that sense of being able to communicate that, it's uplifting, right? And for other people to support this movement, what's the qualities of a good ally? So several of the organizations, including Black in Engineering and Black in Computing, have a call to action. What does it mean to be an anti-racist individual, anti-racist institution? What does it look like to support these organizations? So one thing I would say is number one is to always listen first, the more than you speak, and to always speak and act without fear, right? And a lot of times the other person has to identify you as an ally, and you should not have to tell people you're an ally. They will be able to see that from your actions, but educating yourself, learning about what we need and how to support us. And honestly, for me, a big part is being in those rooms, right? Because, you know, they talk about mentors and sponsors and advocates and being in those spaces. And after you have educated yourself about these things, it's speaking when you see things that are being done to marginalize people. Sometimes we may not feel comfortable speaking, especially Black in engineering, 
we have a lot of faculty who are members of Black and Engineering who don't have tenure yet. So they're not gonna be able to speak to some things because they still have to be promoted and they still have to be retained. So a good ally will be in those spaces and sometimes we'll notice when things are not correct and we'll speak for them, okay? Or speak against something they see their colleagues doing that are inappropriate. I will tell you also asking people when they need to be supported and when they do not, because you also do not want to take the voices away of black or brown person. I had a colleague one time who did something inappropriate and I waited a day because sometimes you got to count to 10. And I called that colleague and I explained to them what they had done that was inappropriate. They apologized, we shook on it and we resolved the issue. Then the next day, a different colleague who had witnessed the offense, who never came to me, then went to the administration and complained and amplified and sent oh. emails. And I really felt like my voice had been taken away because I had handled it the way that I felt comfortable doing. So a big part is asking people, would you like me to get involved? Because you don't want to take anyone's voice either. And do you think sometimes people want to help, but they go about it in the wrong way? So that's an example where somebody's thinking that they're Mm -hmm. helping, but they kind of made it worse, right? Because it had been resolved between me and the one individual, and that was it. But after this person got involved, now the entire campus knew. So now not only was I being asked about it, which is now infringing a lot on my day when I have things to do, I have to keep answering questions. But now this person who had apologized to me was being villainized again, even though I had resolved it with them, right? Yeah. So do you think part of it is people trying to educate themselves about what to do and what not to do as well? So not to bustle in. Correct. And sometimes centering yourself is a thing, right? So learning a way to be helpful without having to center yourself in the conversation. So if I'm telling you this is something that bothers me, You don't always have to let everyone know that I'm an ally and I'm helping. Sometimes the right hand doesn't have to know what the left hand is doing. And you can quietly work in the background to resolve things. And I can appreciate that. And you still don't have to center yourself, right? You don't always have to be rewarded for your good deeds. Sometimes you just do them, as I like to say. You move in stealth mode. Now, if I choose to say, hey, Fiona was a great ally. And I just want to say she knows what I'm talking about. But I really appreciate what she did for me. Like, I will give you an example. I got an email a couple of weeks ago from someone I had done some work with who says, there's this grant I think you should apply for. Just out the blue. I applied for it, not thinking I would get it by any means necessary. I got the grant. It turns out this person knew something I did not know. But they didn't go and shout to the mountaintops. Um, I'm doing something for this person. You don't have to do that. Just let your good deeds speak for themselves sometimes. And do you think sometimes if people maybe want to help, but sometimes don't know the right way to do it, and they've maybe not leapt in and done something wrong, but for them to learn, is it okay for them to reach out? Absolutely. I think it's great to ask questions, but also to do self-study as well. I think especially since 2020 now, you could Google almost any term and you could find out, for example, I had a colleague tell me they didn't know what white fragility was. The Robin D'Angelo book is great, defining terms, microaggression. I had a colleague say they didn't know what microaggression was. I had code switching. Someone told me they didn't know what code switching was. So some of these things you can ask, but some of them you can also Google and Wikipedia yourself. Because another thing that can become exhausting is people constantly asking you to educate them. 
I don't mind answering questions every now and then, but we are not a monolith. I do not speak for all black people, black women, black engineers, black professors, but also if people are constantly saying, well, is that how black people feel? Then sometimes you gotta think, nope, I represent Carlotta. I don't represent all black people. And I am not a anti-racism expert. I can just tell you the things that I have experienced and how I like for them to be resolved or how my community has discussed some of these things. Now, can we talk about how robotics and artificial intelligence are related? I do get asked this a lot. So a robot is about sensing, planning, and acting, right? The robot senses about the world. You write software for a plan, and then it acts with its actuators and motors or grippers or flippers or propellers on the world. So artificial intelligence is an integral part of robotics because the plan that the robot needs to make decisions or the robot's brain that software is created in artificial intelligence. Another thing I'm currently working on right now is I am the editor of a new book that will be coming out on mitigating bias in machine learning, which is diverse communities who study artificial intelligence, machine learning, deep learning, and natural language processing. will talk about how to eliminate some of this bias that you see in technology when you don't consider those things like you and I talked about earlier, such as in facial recognition, or in criminal justice, if you use AI for recidivism and things like that, and you don't consider things like socioeconomic status and background and location and things like that. So that marries the AI with the robotics. That's super helpful because I didn't know yeah. that. So we've done this yeah. women in robotics and AI issue for several years, and I've never made that connection. They're, they're very closely interrelated, yes. Oh, well, that makes perfect sense. And advice for girls and women who are interested in careers in robotics, engineering or AI or anything in the STEM space, but particularly those areas, but they're not sure where to start. So it could be girls at school level, could be university level, but it could also be women who are perhaps further into their careers and might have an interest, but they might think, can I get into this? Have I missed my chance? So where's a good place to start? I don't think there's, it's ever too late. I teach people from nine to 99 about robotics, but I will say your starting point is always innovation and creativity. So engaging in creative activities. So code.org, Black Girls Code, Black Boys Code, Tinkercad.com, VexBR. These are all websites. Getting electronics kits, spark fun kits, robotics kits. You can buy them online from Amazon and start putting stuff together and tinkering and asking questions like, what happens if I push this button? What happens if I take this apart and put it back together? What happens if I move this battery over here or I move this wire over here? Anything that gets your creative juices flowing. Watching YouTube videos like mine on the basics of robotics. What does it mean and how do you get started? I have blog posts on my website, nowheresteminist.com where I talk about how do you get into stemming? How do you get ready for stemming? How to be successful in engineering school? So reading up on the things that you're most passionate about and finding your on-ramp to do that. So pretty much anything around us that we're interested in is going to have a connection to engineering and STEM. So anything that- Correct. I'm sat on a chair now. I've got my hand on a microphone thing around us, or you can even get into engineering in food. Yes, absolutely. How to mechatronics, instructables. All of these are websites that break down basic technology and electronics and explain how things work. How does a microphone work? How does radio communication work? 
whatever you're interested in, you go and you read up on it and go, hey, I kind of like that. I'd like to know more. Our students always go, when am I ever going to see this again? When am I ever going to see this in life? Helping them to understand how the things that they're studying apply to their life makes it way more relevant to them, makes it more important to them. Absolutely. So what's coming up next? What are you looking forward to? So another exciting thing beyond my book coming out, which has me over the moon right now, is Black in Robotics has a summer workshop series, and it is starting July 17th. It will be every Sunday on Zoom through July and August. And we do workshops for adults and children on the basics of programming and robotics. And we'd love to have you. Go to the Black and Robotics Twitter account or Instagram account or website to learn more about the workshops. Oh, that sounds perfect. It's been the greatest pleasure, Carlotta. And we will keep in touch with you if we may. Yes, please do. Thank you for letting me share my journey and some of the exciting things I'm working on. So, Carlotta Berry, thank you so much. Thank you for having me. Hello, my name is Ines Santos. I am the Associate Editor of Women Policy, and I am here to tell you all about our new issue, which showcases dynamic women in the robotics and artificial intelligence space. The stories include Oceanographer Dr. Simona Arakri tells us about combining her research with engineering and offshore robotics as part of a team developing soft robots to help understand ocean processes in order to help tackle climate change. Simona shares her dream that one day there will be autonomous, entirely biodegradable robots capable of leaving behind nothing but data. Oyinmivi Elena Evikiki is a robotics and artificial intelligence engineer from Ghana. She shares her journey of self-development in robotics in areas including programming, design, robot building, developing operating systems, schematic design, machine learning and artificial intelligence and has advice for others who are keen to explore opportunities in the robotics space. Tiffany Caesar works for Microsoft in Seattle and she is in the process of transitioning from a data scientist role to becoming a software development engineer with a focus on data science. She is working on her PhD in computer science with a specialism in applied artificial intelligence. Tiffany shares the importance of diversity of thought in the development of artificial intelligence to prevent eminent biases from being trained into models. Haley Mayer is a PhD student in mechanical engineering at the Hospital for Sick Children in Toronto. She explains how her research combines medicine, mechanical design and biomechanics. Haley also discusses the role of micro-robotics in helping surgeons and doctors to complete more minimally invasive surgeries and to deliver drugs to more remote locations deep within the body. Do check out our website womanphology.co.uk to read the full stories. And that is all for me. Sadly, that's all we have time for this episode. Thank you so much for listening. And remember, if you want to support what we do, then share the link for the show on social media and also follow the show. Feedback is really important, so please do rate and review the show on your podcast app.
join us in the next episode where we'll be meeting ambassadors who are championing gender balance in the workplace. That's all for now.